most avid reader by Bibi Berkey. excited. I've got it all worked out. So, the Reverend Harrington and Mrs Hadley have a catastrophic falling out. Harrington has been entertaining Nicholas Rouse and encouraging his rallies with the angry and impoverished local labourers. She's a revolutionary by nature and can't help but get involved. At the same time, she's growing uncomfortable about the rumours of infanticide spreading about the Hesiots. Suddenly their miraculous run of all-female children seems less godsend and more diabolic. Harrington throws them off church land. Nathan goes cap in hand to his mistress, Mrs Hadley, to ask for a corner of the Hindworld estate for the women. She agrees for three reasons. Firstly, because she wants to snub Harrington. Secondly, because she plans to kick the complaining labourers off her land and replace them with the industrious Hesiods but mainly because she and Nathan Gentle have a special understanding and she doesn't want their agreement compromised, if you get my drift. You didn't see that coming, did you? Do you want to have a go and write these chapters? I don't mind. Your most avid reader. Have a go? Have a go? What? And then you'll give me marks out of ten and see how well I've done, or whether my efforts fit the bill? Shall I see if I can try to reach your immaculate literary standards? Have a... Fucking go! Sorry. Where do you get off? Are you enjoying shredding me like this? Shredding you? What on earth do you mean? What have I done? It feels like some sort of bloody torture equipment's being used on me. Tearing at me. Every time you throw me another easily cobbled together bit of writing, you break me down a little further. You shred me. Don't you realise the effect it's having on me? And then you just toss the words, why don't you have a go, at me, as though I'm some eager little puppy trying to get the hang of it. Christ! Why don't you just send me a how-to-write book in the post? I'm guilty of a lot, but I'm not that fucking thick-skinned. I'm sorry. I knew this would happen. I just got carried away. I often don't think things through properly. Hope for the best possible outcome. Maybe it was inevitable that we'd clash. I'll say goodbye. Oh, and perhaps you ought to think about giving up writing. It makes you unhappy and unwell. You've done it, and to great acclaim, but it makes you miserable. And that just goes to show how much you know about writing. Why, I'll remain a writer, and you'll never be one. Goodbye. Good luck. It was a clear, cold, promising sort of April day. A bit like today, when I finally fell in love. I was 38, a writer with three complete books behind her, another one halfway done. 
a woman with a career ahead of her, excited by her ideas, by the prospect of wider recognition. I was in a fever of hopes and possibilities. I'd written reviews and essays for two Sunday newspapers, and there were requests for more. I was, as they say, on a high. My highs, incidentally, are utterly delicious, delirious. I was properly divorced by then, and was bothered neither by guilt nor by any sentimental attachment to my lost life in New York. My father had come from Hampshire originally and had always longed to return to live there. He died a year before, and I now had a yearning to settle in his county to complete his dream. I was lucky enough to see my cottage on a day when everything seemed beautiful to me. Its signs of advanced decay appeared charming then, not now. Having to bend down to get through the door was utterly delightful. Now I grumble every time I stoop to enter. Its dilapidation was just another exciting challenge. I would fix it all by myself and make it the envy of the village. My cottage was set on a tiny hill with a long sweep of garden running up to its front gate. It was low and thatched and sheltered at the back by an old brick wall and outhouses. It was possibly a little isolated for a woman on her own, not because I felt in physical danger, but because I might not take to the solitary life. Actually, I did. I relished it. I also discovered that I had a rather affectionate side, with animals. I acquired two dogs from a neighbour whose elderly mother had died and who was looking for new owners. They were a terrier and a spaniel. Whenever I went up to London to see the publishing house, I would leave them in the care of that neighbour. That was our agreement. As it happened, I grew less and less inclined to leave them. My God, I loved them. Both are gone now, replaced by two others. And the dying of those dogs exposed me to a more intense grief than any other bereavement I've known, even perhaps for my father. Go on laugh. I don't care. You have to be the type to love living with other species. Some humans recoil from it. I find it easier than living with people. It feels more natural to me. Maybe you're thinking I'm going to say that it was these dogs I fell in love with at 38. No, that would be strange, even for me. I speak to you as though you were my biographer and I have a need to be searingly honest. You'd find me out anyway. You understand me. I ought to stress that while I loved the solitude of the countryside and its privacy, I didn't much care for all that mud and grass. I'm an urban girl, really. If it weren't for the masses of people, then the city would be the place for me. But I suppose, if it weren't for the masses of people, it wouldn't be a city. I rather like the idea of a ghost town, a place built by ambitious humans who then fled an epidemic, leaving it to me. Perhaps a couple of shopkeepers or cleaners could be held back on a retainer, but otherwise I should like the streets to be deserted and resounding with the echo of my own footsteps. So anyway, I'm no bloody Dorothy Wordsworth. The countryside is quiet, private, and ideal for walking dogs. That cold, clear April day, 
The dogs and I came across a group of men in the fields behind my house. Farmers, I imagined, examining a badger set or some such. Before I knew what was happening, my dogs were off and sniffing round the set and yapping, and the men were shouting and trying to shoo the dogs off, and there was all hell to pay. One of them shouted at me, What the fuck do you think you're doing? I was appalled. I didn't move here for this kind of low-life behaviour. Hard to believe, but I was lost for words. I just whimpered, Don't touch my dogs. The man stopped and looked at me and shook his head, and I called the dogs and went over and put their leads on. I dragged them away amid the most awful yapping and grumbling. As I left, the man ran after me, and before he could say anything, I asked him, What are you up to? Are you killing something? He said no, but I didn't believe him. He certainly seemed furious with me for having found him out. You're doing something illegal, aren't you? I said, getting somewhat bolder now. He just went, and that was that. Except, of course, that I reported them. I'm funny like that. When my suspicions are aroused, I can't rest. I feel good about turning people in if they've done something wrong. Anyway, the next morning I got on a train to London to see my old agent for lunch, and I found myself sitting opposite an attractive, well-built young man who looked vaguely familiar. I stared at him while he read some documents, trying to place him, and all at once he looked up and sighed and said he hoped I was pleased with myself. I was stunned, so he explained himself. The police came to check up on us, you know. And that's when I realised who he was. The thug by the badger set who had sworn at me. Only here he was in a suit, very neatly done up, rather respectable, and clearly with a normal kind of job in town. Well, I sank lower and lower in my seat and said next to nothing. Meanwhile, he explained that actually he was a conservationist and that he'd been inspecting reports of illegal wildlife traps set by the landowner. He'd come across a pile of baited food, which he suspected was poison, and could have been eaten by my dogs. Just imagine. He and his colleagues were gathering the evidence when the copper turned up. I said to him, you were in the right and I was wrong. So what harm's been done? The harm, he said, was that the landowner had to be informed and our cover was blown. I'm now off to sort out some sort of preemptive legal stuff with the lawyers representing our organisation. Is there anything I can do? I asked, rather lamely. Yes. When you next see me, you and your dogs can turn around and walk the other way. Only there won't be a next time, because, like I say, our cover is blown. You know, I don't think I'm half bad looking. I used to be a bit on the large side, but years of neurosis have carved the fat away from my body, leaving me long and lean. I have dark, thick, curly hair and dark eyes. My skin is good. Above all, I'm quite confident and commanding, and I know that that's sexually attractive to some men. I was instantly attracted to him, and I sensed that he hated me, but in a complicated way, a way that confused him. He was repulsed by the idea of me, but not by the flesh of me, if you see what I mean. We did strike up something of a civil conversation on that train journey. His answers were clipped, but far from withheld. He seemed to be daring me to keep talking. I'd say things like, So, you're an eco-warrior then, are you? 
and he'd sneer back at me. Do I look like one? And I'd say, I've no idea. I don't tend to mix with such people. He'd look out of the window and his lips were constantly pursed. I watched his profile. He had soft, thick cheeks, the face of a young man, but his eyes were quite lined, with beautiful fans breaking out at the corners. I guessed he was younger than me, but not by much. He was wearing a wedding ring. Just before the train arrived at Victoria, we both felt the loss of something, and we suddenly looked at each other in utter fear. But we couldn't say anything, because any kind of warm parting would have been preposterous. He got off first, and I expected him to disappear at once. I stood at the doorway of the train, bereft, and looked on. He walked a few steps, then turned, and called out in a voice barely containing its rage. Where do you live, anyway? I shrieked out my address, but had no idea whether he had heard it because in the single beat of a heart, he was consumed by the monstrous, shifting mass of humanity that moves along a platform and out into the teeming streets of our capital city. Hillary was played by Rebecca Charles. Monica by Georgina Sutton. Your Most Avid Reader was written by Bibi Berkey with sound editing by Mark Lingwood. It was made by Tempest Productions and brought to you with the kind support of Rattlesnake Books, an established seller of books, maps, ephemera, art and curiosities. Rattlesnake Books can be found on Instagram, Etsy, Abe Books and Biblio. Thank you.